ಮೂರ್ತಿಂ ದಂಡಾತೀತಂ ಗಗನ ಸದೃಶಂ ತತ್ತಮಶಾಲಾಕ್ಷಮಚಲಂ ಸರ್ವೀ ಸಾಕ್ಷಿಭೂತ ಭಾವಾತೀತ್ರಿಗುಣರಹಿತ ಸದ್ಗುರುಮಾಮಿಲ್ಲಿಡರ್ಸ್ಟಿಸ್ಪೆಲ್ಹುಸ್ಟಿಸ್ಪೆಲ್ಹುಸ್ಟಿಸ್
will not be used for new creation. He is liberated. We shall discuss this morning life beyond death. Now what happens after death? Of course it is a great mystery, it is a question which has been asked from time out of mind. There are several views. Now, first, there is a complete annihilation. This view is held by the materialists. And the second view is what happens after death is unknown and unknowable by our reasoning. Now, therefore, don't bother about it. As long as you live, live well, do good work, you can serve your country, you can cultivate knowledge, music, art, so on and so forth. That's the agnostic view. You see, many scientists and intellectuals hold this view. Then the third view is there is a life continues after death. There is a continuation life. All major religions of the world and the great mystics hold this view. But belief in the continuation of life after death is as widespread, perhaps more widespread, that life continues after death than total annihilation or doubts of its existence. This view shared by common men and philosophers, thinkers and the devotees of God or religious people, many satisfied, they do not bother about what happens after death. They are absorbed in the enjoyment of material pleasures or in other things. But when the near and dear one is dead or when we see that the shadow of the other world is lengthening before us, when we see the yawning chasm before us and we stand on the precipice, we always ask this question, now what after this? Only many serious scientists realize that the soul beyond death well, cannot be known by scientific rational investigation. Yet, they respect the concept of the continuity of the soul, many scientists. Evolution theory as propounded by Darwin, tells us about the indestructibility of the life principle. Well, in course of evolution, life has faced many challenges from the outer world. Well, the life principle suffered from bitter cold, torrid heat, and obstacles on land, on earth, and in air, from flood, from epidemic, 
and from war and still life continues to exist somehow the life adapts itself to new situation by changing the outer forms and it survives darwin in his study of the fossils and the bones and primitive old ancient animals he discovered that through natural selection or adaptation or the survival of the fittest somehow the life principle survives it only changes the physical structure that is the evolution taught by charles darwin the physical structures evolve he did not discuss at all about the existence of the soul the major religions of the world assume that the soul continues to live after death such belief assures the devotees of happiness hereafter if nothing exists then what is the meaning of that peace and happiness forever which is promised by the scriptures or prophets and also such belief tells us of the punishment after death for the wicked otherwise if there is no punishment for the wicked or if there is no reward for the virtuous then the moral foundation of the world is undermined our life on earth is very short and exposed to various temptations one cannot experience all the consequences of actions in a short span of life between the birth and death so you see old testament speaks of resurrection jesus christ also mentions of life after death either in heaven or in hell the resurrection of christ after his crucifixion convinces his followers of the immortality that is the major point one of the major points of the nicene creed which was accepted in 325 ad and this creed as you know is regularly repeated in all the christian churches now hinduism accepts immortality and this inevitable corollary as a pillar of hinduism a hindu can deny the existence of god but still he can be a good hindu without belief in god but a hindu must accept the reality of the soul and its eventual perfection if a hindu denies the soul or this eventual perfection we do not call him a hindu now this idea of immortality 
and the idea of reincarnation are in the very blood of the Hindus. As in your country, the idea of democracy, equality and social justice is in the very blood of the American men and women. Now, this faith in immortality gives a Hindu the strength and vision to face the many baffling problems of life. This idea of reincarnation and immortality well, explains to a Hindu the present inequality between man and man and also assures him of ultimate liberation from the pain and suffering of our mundane existence. Now, immortality is not a dogma with the Hindus. It is a metaphysical truth based upon the direct experience. According to Hinduism, as experienced by the mystics during their lifetime, that body and soul are completely two different things. The soul exists independent of the body. Also, the Hindu mystics see the soul entering the body at the time of conception and departing from the body at the time of death. The mystics, the yogis see it. It is said in the Bhagavad Gita, those who have controlled their mind, controlled their sense organs, they see this coming of the soul into the body and also leaving the body if they practice yogic disciplines. Now, I know a great, knew a great Hindu mystic who died a number of years ago and he told us, that a highly developed soul, a highly developed man can see, can watch, witness the death of the mind and also the death of the vital breath. That the vital breath gradually, the vital breath which keeps the body alive, that vital breath gradually dying and the mind is gradually disintegrating, the advanced souls witness it. Now, how does the soul leave the body? What happens at the time of death and how does it reincarnate? This is explained in one of our major Upanishads. It is a very vivid description. I think it is a very beautiful description. It is based upon observation. If you observe a man dying, you will see it yourself. A man who is dying, about to die, he is compared to a heavily loaded cart, a bullock cart in India use. And as it moves along, it makes a creaking sound, creaking sound, bullock cart makes. 
it is carrying a heavy load. So also the dying man makes all these rattles and all these kind of spasms, shows all kinds of spasms because it is about to leave the body, like the movement of a bullock cart, burdened with the heavy load of the past karma. Now, the embodied soul, now you have to remember this, the embodied soul, the soul identified with the body, and the supreme soul, the pure spirit in man, they are apparently two different things. I mean, the supreme soul is not born, does not die, you have to remember. But the apparent soul, which is a reflection of the supreme soul, which is identified with the body, the apparent soul, birth and death are spoken of him. So the embodied soul at the time of death, controlled by the supreme soul, leaves the gross body and together with the subtle body and the vital breath. Now according to Hinduism there are three kinds of bodies. The gross body, the physical body which you see, which function the awakening state, the subtle body, which you do not see, but which functions in dream, and the causal body, which functions in deep sleep. So, according to Hindu view, the supreme soul, the embodied soul, controlled by the supreme soul, leaves the gross body together with the subtle body and the vital breath. The physical body has grown thin with disease or old age or for lack of food. The gross body has served this purpose. Now, the soul is about to leave the body. I mean, when I say the word soul, you have to remember the embodied soul, the soul which has identified itself with the body. Now, this is the reflected soul. So, this apparent soul or embodied soul detaches itself from different parts of the body, such as the eye, the nose, the tongue, the skin, so on and so forth. And it departs from the body. The example is given of a ripe fruit, a mango or a fig or an apple, when these fruits are fully ripe, they detach themselves from the stalk and fall. Now this departure of the soul is like the departure of a king from his capital and going to another distant city in his kingdom. So when the king goes to a new city, there the officers, ministers there are ready to welcome him. Like President Johnson, when he went to the Far East, there were all these officers, big officials here, from here and also from there, they were ready to welcome him. So also, when the soul leaves the body, there are the physical particles, material particles of the new body 
these physical particles supplied by the sperm and the ova, you see, from which the new body will be made, await the coming of the soul, the departed soul. Now, at the time of death, now I am again describing death scene. This is very interesting. At the time of death, well, the organs gather around the soul, the organs, eyes, ear, so on and so forth, nose, skin, so forth. They gather around the soul to bid him farewell. As when a big official, say President Johnson, goes to the airport, the officers are there, gathered, to bid him farewell and a safe trip, safe journey. So, then what happens? Just follow step by step. Well, the breathing becomes difficult. The breathing becomes difficult. The soul, which pervades the whole body, it comes to the heart. Now, here is something very technical, but I'll explain. The presiding deity of the eye, the organ, withdraws itself from the gross body. What is the meaning of this presiding deity, the controlling deity? Now, these organs, like eyes and ears, nose, they are all inert material particles, but they are active, they function. Now, inert material function, particles cannot function of themselves. This furniture cannot function, cannot move from place to place unless somebody pushes it. So these inert particles, inert material particles cannot function without the control of some sort of living principle and that is called the deity. And what is this life principle? What is this consciousness which animates the sense organs? Now, it is an aspect of Brahman, or the pure spirit, all-pervading consciousness. So, a portion, at least, as it were, of that all-pervading consciousness controls our sense organs. That is why the sense organs function. Now, this is called the presiding deity. Now, when the presiding deity, the deity that means that the aspect of consciousness withdraws itself from the gross body and enters into the subtle body, if it is inside the gross body, the dying man fails to notice color. People around him, the dying man, the children or wife say, do you see us? He said, no, I don't see. Because the controlling deity has withdrawn itself, the eyes do not function. People say he does not hear. Then, do you smell? He said, no, I don't smell anything. He whispers, I don't say smell anything. Because the controlling deity of the nose has left. Then, do you taste? They put some food. No, I don't taste. That means the controlling deity of the tongue has left it. This is all observation. You see it. Then they ask him a question. How are you? 
he can't speak because the controlling deity of the vocal organ has already left him. The same thing with taste, he does not taste, he does not hear, so on and so forth. Then the controlling deity of the mind has left him. He cannot think. And then the controlling deity of the intellect has left. He cannot know. Then what happens? He cannot see, he cannot hear, he cannot taste, he cannot think, he cannot know. Then what happens? You know, as I told you, that the soul comes to the heart and the upper part of the heart lights up. And by that light, the soul departs to one of the nine apertures in the body. There are nine apertures in the body. The eyes, the nose, nostrils, two eyes, nostrils, mouth, two ears, the organ of evacuation, the organ of generation, and the navel, and the top of the head. But these are the nine apertures of the body. And the soul leaves the body through one of the apertures. Now, whether it will be an upper aperture or a lower aperture, that depends upon the life the man has lived. If the man has lived a righteous life, the soul departs through one of the upper apertures. It goes to some higher planes. And if the man has lived a wicked life, the soul passes through one of the lower apertures. Then the soul departs, the soul has left the body, then the breath departs. It's very interesting. I myself saw it, that the nurse came and said, why, the person is dead. The soul has left. Examine the heart. Heart is not working. But I could see the breath, breathing. I said, what is this breath? She's alive. I said, no, it is a, they call it reflex action. When, suppose you, uh, of course you don't see, suppose uh, uh, we see in India, suppose you kill a goat, the head is severed, or you can see in this country also, and animals, the head is severed, but still there's a movement, sort of spasm in the body. That means still the breath is there, but the soul has already left, don't you know? Now then, after leaving the body, the self or the soul becomes endowed with particular consciousness, the specific consciousness, which is determined what kind of consciousness it will be. It is determined by the thought at the moment of death. And what kind of thought a man will cherish at the hour of death, that is determined by knowledge, action and his past experience. How does the soul leave the body? It's a very vivid description. It's all from the keen observation of the Hindu philosophers. Well, they give the example of a caterpillar or a leech. You know, a caterpillar or a leech slowly crawls to the tip of the blade of grass. And then the leech or stretches itself, stretches itself, and then gets hold of another blade of grass, and then it leaves the other blade. 
it comes to the top, you know, tip of the grass, the blade, and then stretches itself and takes care of the of another blade of grass and leaves the other the old blade. In the same way, the soul encased in the subtle body, the gross body is left, but subtle body accompanies the soul, and the soul is in the subtle body. Well, he stretches itself as it were and takes hold of another body. And that body may be the body of a god or body of an animal determined by his own action. In other words, the Upanishad says either he goes to the different higher planes of different deities or he goes to the plane of his ancestors, departed ancestors called Pitriloka, or even he can go to a lower plane determined by his action. Now, in that plane, the soul, encased in the subtle body, he experiences the fruit of action done in the present life. If he is a wicked man, well, he suffers what perhaps other religions call hell or netherworld. But if he's a good man, he goes to one of the upper regions and there he enjoys the fruit of action. And when the fruit is ripped, then he leaves that plane and again he becomes incarnated in a human body. It is just like a man has done criminal action, he is sent to the jail and there he suffers. But when the Talam is over, he again comes back and becomes a free man. Likewise, if a man has done an extremely meritorious action, he goes to the White House. And when the fruit of that action is experienced, four years or eight years, then he comes back and becomes a citizen again. So what we learn from this the vivid description? This reincarnation of the soul, the soul reincarnates in different bodies on account of the desires it cherishes. For the fulfillment of the desires, it either goes to upper world or nether world and then finally comes back to the earth, born in a human body and what kind of body it will assume, in which family it will be born, that is determined by the residual of his past actions. That if he cherishes good desires, he would be born in a rich family, in a pious family. If at the hour of death he wanted money, he will be born in a rich family. If at the hour of death, if he desired to acquire name and fame, he will be born in that family where he will get all the facilities to fulfill his desire. Thus man who cherishes desires, incarnates. But for a man who has no desire, not that he is a stone, but he had fulfilled all the desires and then he cultivated a spiritual life. He realized God and in God he found the fulfillment of all desires. So he has no earthly material desires. So he does not reincarnate. In other words, his soul 
does not depart. What happens? That his soul marches in pure spirit or Brahman. Well, this is also very beautifully described in Socratic dialogue. When just before he was about to take hemlock, Sitro, his one of his disciples, said, Now what about disposal of your body after your death? And Socrates smiled and said, Try to catch me. We are talking of the funeral. Try to catch me. Then he said, You will not find me. Then he said, If death is not an endless dream of sleep, then after leaving this body, I shall go to another world and I will have wonderful time with Homer, Hesiod, Agamemnon and other great souls. These are different worlds. And so, this what I have described now. This is matter of direct experience. Now scriptures or reasoning cannot demonstrate those things, the departure of the soul from the body, so on and so forth. Now the scriptures also discuss the immortality and reincarnation. But that discussion is based upon the nature of the soul. What is soul? What does Hindu philosophy, how does it describe the soul? Well, the Hindus from the earliest times, from the time of the Rig Veda, they were searching for the first principle in man and the first principle in the universe. As they analyzed the first principle, as well as they investigated into the first principle by analyzing the universe, they found that in the creation everything is changing, everything is impermanent. But behind the change, behind the flux, there is something which is unchangeable, which is unlimited, which is infinite. They call that Brahman the unchanging infinite substance. Likewise they changed the nature of man and they found behind the changing man our body changes, our sense organ change, our mind changes, but behind all the changes there is something that does not change, that always remains the same and they call that Atman or the Self. Now this Atman or Self, they realized, it is something of the nature of consciousness. Now we all know, I am conscious, you know you are conscious. So this consciousness is intuited of Atman. But there is a difficulty here. The Brahman, which is behind the universe, the unlimited substance, infinite substance, ah, that can be matter. It can be a subtle form of matter. It can be even energy. Energy is a form of matter. Under a certain state of vibration, the matter is seen as energy, as the scientists tell us. So behind the universe, 
there is a substance which is unlimited, infinite, but can be very well a material entity. And behind man there is something which is conscious. We all know we are conscious. But that consciousness in individual can be limited by other forms of consciousness. In other words, there can be multiplicity of souls. Well, then the Hindu philosophers meditated on this subject for a long time. And the depth of meditation, they discovered that the Brahman, or the substance behind the universe, and Atman, the substance behind man, they are really one and same substance, identical. They discovered through meditation, not by discussion. And thus they posited or postulated a new aspect, a new dimension of reality, which is infinite, which is eternal, which is unlimited, at the same time which is conscious, which is intelligent. Well, they are one. Now this is the great discovery of Hinduism, that unique feature of Hindu philosophy, as expressed by such statements of the Vedas, I am He, thou that art. So now you have to remember that birth and death, or the incarnation, they only refer to the embodied soul, the soul which under the spell of Maya, or what you call metaphysical ignorance, identified itself with the body. You call him the tangible man. So the birth and death, the reincarnation, they all belong to the embodied soul. Now what happens to the embodied soul after death? Well, I have already suggested to you the materialistic speaks of complete annihilation. But that does not appeal to the Hindu mind. Well, science speaks of indestructibility of matter. And matter is a very trivial thing compared to the soul. And if this scientists say that matter can never be destroyed, then how can you speak of the destruction of such a precious thing as the soul? Well, it did not appeal to their mind. And if you hold the materialistic view, then you lead a life of what? Competition? Cheat another man? You can be dishonest if you can get away with it. Because, as the greatest atheist of India said, well, once the body is reduced to ashes, it will never come back again. Therefore, live long, live happily, eat good meal, a juicy steak every day. If it means you are borrowing money from somebody else, you don't have to pay it back. Once you die, well, nothing happens. So all disappears. That's one view. Then we come to the Semitic view. Christians, the Muslims and the Jewish people, they cherish this view. The soul has a beginning. The soul comes into existence at the time of birth and then it lives on forever. It lives a thing with a beginning 
without end, immortal. Well, it is not quite rational to us, because the thing which has a beginning, it must have an end. A thing which begins in time, it also ceases to exist in time. Well, also this idea of the present birth being the first birth, well, that does not explain satisfactorily the physical, the moral or spiritual inequality we see between one man and another. You can't explain those things satisfactorily or by referring to heredity, environment or education. You cannot say this is the will of God, predestination. You see, as Calvin said, that even before the world was created, the Lord had predetermined which soul would be virtuous and be saved, and which would be wicked and be consigned to hell. Well, now that seems to be, that makes God cruel, whimsical and dogmatic. Now, now they say also, the eternal happiness for the believers. Well, <laughs> many people will think that kind of happiness every day with Ambrosi and Manna and all these things you see, and every day walk passing through the pearly gate and walking over the, you know, roads in heaven, you know, just paved with ruby and diamonds, so on and so forth. Well, that can be also a monotonous happiness. I mean, if you have your thanksgiving every day, you will not enjoy it. Now, they say that even people who live in utopia, sometimes they too get bored, don't you know? Now, another point Hinduism makes, the happiness in heaven, which Hindus don't doubt, but that happiness in heaven is the result, is the effect of the righteous action you have done on earth. And how long does an effect last? Well, as long as there is the momentum given to it by the cause. When that momentum is exhausted, the effect also disappears. You take a wheel or a ball, you give it a push, well, the push is the cause, and the ball rolls on and on and on by the momentum. And when the momentum is over, the ball comes to a stop. So, the happiness in heaven cannot be eternal. It comes to an end. When the momentum given to it by your righteous action is exhausted, then what they call the immortality in heaven, according to Hinduism, it is only a relative immortality. On earth, we are destined to live for what? How long? Three score and ten years, maybe hundred years, maybe hundred and twenty years, that's all. In heaven, maybe you live for millions of years. Well, you live there for a countless number of years of which 
There is no last disease. Goes on and on and on. But so what? What is time? Time is a state of vibration of mind. For instance, you go to sleep, you see a dream, and the dream experience lasts for say 15 years, 20 years, you have been traveling all around the world, so on and so forth, and when you wake up, you feel you have lived, slept only for 10 minutes. The vibration of mind is different. So what you call millions of years in heaven or billions of years in heaven, well, maybe so from our earthly standpoint, but it may be just a few minutes from the standpoint of mind vibrates in such a way there that millions of years, what we call millions of years, maybe a few minutes. Now, then comes the doctrine of eternal suffering. Well, that's also very difficult to accept. Suffering in hell for the sinner. Well, Many people, most of the people die in sin. Well, they must suffer from everlasting pain in hell. Unbaptized children, people who are born outside the Semitic tradition. Well, what happens to them? So you see, it is inconsistent, this idea of eternal suffering inconsistent with the idea of love and compassion which we associate with God. Well, God has created man in his own image. And you do not expect God will be very happy to see his children suffering in hell. You don't expect he will be very happy to see that. Well, I remember the story of a Presbyterian minister well, his church was just in the borderland between Scotland and England. And every Sunday morning, with absolute good purpose, he gave a vivid description of hell. Oh, the burning peat and the sulfur and lava and what not, scorpions and snakes and everything. Every Sunday morning he would give that speech. Well, one day his speech became so eloquent so vivid, the congregation became a little restive, nervous. He stopped for a minute and he looked at the congregation. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I see you are a little disturbed. But one thing you have to remember, what he described about the hellfire, that is what God does in his official capacity. But what he thinks as an individual, ah, that's a personal affair. We don't discuss that. So, you see, a prodigal son must be given a chance to return to father's home. So, we have the Hindu view now of rebirth, which is a necessary corollary of immortality. The rebirth is governed by law of karma, the cause, law of cause and effect, which is the basis of physical science and everything. As you sow, so you reap. We are reaping today what we have sown before. Now what is happening in Southeast Asia? God is not responsible for it, or this or that responsible for it. It is our own karma that is responsible for it. Inexorable 
the law of karma. Now, but this law of karma which determines our future birth, the law of karma makes ourselves responsible for our suffering. So we can accept our suffering with patience and without making others responsible for it. Also the law of karma gives us the assurance of future happiness if we lead, begin to lead a pious life, moral life from now. The sole factor in liberation is desirelessness that experience and reflection tell us that by the fulfillment of finite desire you cannot enjoy, experience infinite happiness. All happiness derived from the result of desire, all forms of happiness come to an end. So when you go through the entire gamut of experience, from the experience of an insect to the experience of the highest angel, then you realize that these are all transitory forms of happiness. These are all impermanent happiness. It is said in Buddhist mythology, just before you attain to nirvana, salvation, you see in front of you, just as in a movie screen, all the experiences of your past, from the time you lived as a blade of grass, to the time you lived, you were born as an angel, all those experiences passing through that movie screen in front of you, one after another. Then you ask your mind, mind, you have enjoyed all these experiences. There is no other experience beyond that. Do you want to repeat any of those experiences? The mind said, no, I have seen all through all that. The moment mind says no, it becomes desireless and it is free. And that is called nirvana or what is called liberation. This realization of the soul's immortality, not the apparent soul, but the true soul is never born, it never dies, only under the influence of maya it appears as the embodied soul and through the attainment of knowledge it has removed all the veils and this is true nature. So when you know the soul is immortal, then you get to the fear of death. The materials cling to the body as long as they can and then accept the inevitable with a sort of stoic resignation. As Shakespeare said, it will come when it will come. But that does not mean he cannot lead a noble life, he can serve his country in the battlefield, he can uh, cultivate art, this and that, he can do. As Macaulay said, that who can die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temple of his gods? So you see an atheist or an agnostic also can lead a noble life. But the point is, what do they feel? 
when the time comes inwardly what they feel. They are trained, no doubt, not to express their feeling, stoic resignation, forms. But do they feel? As Saint Paul felt, O oh death, where is the sting? O oh grave, where is the victory? That great unspeakable joy. They, do they feel? So you see, now this is the point, and I'll stop here. If death gives finality to a man's existence, if there is no continuation of life after death, then what? Then there is nothing to be hoped for, nothing to be expected, nothing to be done, save to await our turn to mount the scaffold and bid farewell to the colossal blunder, this much ado about nothing world. It is immortality that gives stability and permanence to the soul, a unique possession if lost leaves nothing else to be desired. Immortality of soul, as I said, cannot be demonstrated by scientific method of reasoning, but it can be accepted even by a rational mind, even by a scientist, the immortality of soul as a hypothesis and tested upon. Many scientific experiments start with hypothesis. So, one can accept this immortality of soul as a hypothesis. We can test it by acting on it. Then we shall know whether or not it works. Well, friends, I mean, even from the rational standpoint, this immortality is more reasonable than unreasonable. It is more probable than improbable. We can live by it as it were. Immortality is true. Immortality will give us the courage and inspiration to face the difficult problems of life. Well, I suppose if we firmly cling to the idea of immortality, I do not know what is going to happen in the next 10 years, 15 years. If there is a nuclear war or bacteriological war or a radiological war, then what you will see? The angel of death hovering over every housetop. But if we cling to the idea of immortality, then we shall be able to face the problems of life, problems of suffering or even death with certain courage, patience, and joy as 
countless millions of Hindus and Buddhists have done for the past thousands of years. Om Asato Ma Sadgamaya Tamaso Ma Jyotir Gamaya Mritto Ma Yamritangamaya Abhirabhir Mayedi Rudra Jatte Dakshinamukham Tenama Pahinittam Tenama Pahinittam Om Shanti 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 Lead us from unreal to real, from darkness to light, from death, disease and suffering to immortality. Manifest thyself in us through and through and protect us always with thy compassionate face. Peace, peace, peace be unto us and to all living beings. <coughs>